Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. Visitors on the 4th of July, America's Independence Day, visit the Tampa Bay History Center to learn more about our common heritage. Built on the site of the old Fort Rook Military Reservation, the center invites distinguished guests to present on a number of historical topics. Marine Corps living historian Dave Eckert is a perennial at the center. Over the years, he's presented about the Marines in the Second Seminole War. He also presents at various recreated forts and commemorative battle events. He joins us today to share how in seven years of war, the Marines in Florida suffered nary a blemish to their reputation during their tour of duty. While an often futile assignment for the Army, Marines made the best of their presence and demonstrated without a doubt their great value to the nation's leaders when the nation needed them for pressing business. Dave shares stories and anecdotes about the Marines' contributions to the Second Creek and Seminole Wars. Dave examines the old man of the Marines, Commandant Archibald Henderson, daring, brash, brave, and professional officer in running the Corps and bringing the war and Marines to Florida. He looks at the Marines' uniforms and chow and how his natural curiosity helped him to acquire invaluable records on Marines throughout their history. These covered the Seminole War, but they also provided slices of life about Marines who served later, such as in Nicaragua. Dave pulled information from a variety of sources to eventually pen a book on that Marine service. Dave Eckert, welcome back to the Seminole Wars. Glad to be back here and tell you a little more about the Marines in the Second Seminole War. Dave, you get out on the road and you display the Marine uniform and you take questions. Where did you just do this and how did it go? At the Tampa Bay History Center, a couple of years ago, they started having featured speakers once a month. I gave three separate talks on the Marines in the Second Creek and Seminole Wars. I've been doing talks down at the History Center probably for about nine or ten years. They've been having reenactors come in on Fourth of July of different periods and giving talks. So I've been down there quite often. And then uh, I also did Sulphur Springs Museum a couple months ago, Florida Pioneer Village up at Dade City. Those two talks were on the Marines during the Civil War. But today we're back into the Seminole War. All right. Refresh our memories about the Marine contribution to the Second Seminole War. Marines were only involved in the Second Seminole War. They weren't really involved in the first to speak of, except they may have patrolled a little bit the Navy. They've only concentrated on the Second Seminole War because it was the longest seven years, and they were thoroughly involved. What were your expectations when you began presenting as a Marine from the Second Seminole War? When I first got into doing the reenactment for the Second Seminole War, up at Fort Foster, saw that Marines actually manned that fort for a while. So I started doing some research. Come to find out most of their documentation got burned up years ago. So I had to use other primary sources of that period to learn more about them. And I eventually put a book together, The U.S. Marines in the Second Creek and Second Seminole War. The Marines have been around since 1775, mostly as seagoing soldiers, as they were called, as a onboard enforcement. You might call them onboard police to back up the captain. And they were together in regiments or battalions on land duty. 
both in the Revolutionary War and in the War of 1812 with Andy Jackson there in New Orleans. Seminole War comes around and President Jackson, having been an army general, and needless to say, he was a little prejudiced toward the army and, and prejudiced against the Navy and the Marines. At one point, he really tried to disband them and work them into the army. There was enough kickback that they decided the Navy needed the Marines. Having escaped disillusion, what was next for the Marines? After the dispute about the Marines not needing to be disbanded, in uh, May of 1836, there were troubles with the Seminoles and with the Creeks. Commandant Henderson offered the use of the Marines down in both Alabama and Georgia for the Creeks and Florida. We pulled together 18 officers and 303 Marines out of the different naval yards. There was about six or seven different naval yards at the time around the country and formed a regiment and brought them down first to Georgia and Alabama. This movement accompanied a number of firsts for the Marines. What were these? A couple firsts in that was the first time the Marine mode of transportation were on trains going to war and by steamboat. They mobilized, went down to Savannah, and they ended up actually doing 224 march from Augusta, Georgia to Columbus, Georgia. They went across the Chattahoochee River where Henderson was tasked with building a small fort there for supplies, mostly, and do patrols through Alabama. Now, they were there from May to October of 1836, when the Creek issues was pretty much taken care of, and they started taking Creeks out west, out to the Arkansas Territory. As a matter of fact, Lieutenant Sprague of the Marines was one of the officers in charge of one of the groups of Creeks going out. All right. Two other Marine officers were left in charge of two small villages of Creek families, of Creek warriors who volunteered to go to Florida to help round up Seminoles. Now, there were about 700 of them, and they were going to be paid the same as Army soldiers, the same equipment as Army soldiers, and with the guarantee that their families could stay in Alabama until February of 1837, when the Creek warriors were supposed to come back. Unfortunately, Jessup decided he needed those Creek warriors longer. So they got an extension on their mission. No big deal, right? That didn't set well with the Alabama and Georgia people. They wanted all those Creeks out now. So when February of 1837 rolled around and the warriors were supposed to be back and move out to Arkansas Territory with their families, the Alabama and Georgia militia decided they were going to force them out. So the state militias are going to force out the Creeks in the presence of federal forces in the guise of Marines. How did that turn out? Owing to the cool-headedness of Lieutenant Reynolds and Lieutenant Sloan in those two little villages, they prevented what could have turned into a bloodbath because tempers got out of hand. And to keep the peace with those militia groups and made them understand very clearly that if they caused depredations against those Creek families that the federal government would hunt them down. Now, those two Marine officers managed to get those families moving. And unfortunately, what they had to leave behind, they thought they had as a secure storage. However, once they left, those militia groups went in there and stole everything. Reynolds and Sloan petitioned the government with a complete list of everything that was stolen, petitioned the government for a repayment to those families for what they lost, which eventually happened. 
General Jessup also, when he learned this in Florida, really was upset with them. And he also made sure that the government reimbursed those, those families. How many men did the two Marines command? Reynolds and Sloan, I'm not sure how many men they actually had under their command. Probably not more than a couple squads. They were there to oversee those Creek families until it was time to move them. When they ended up having to move them, they they took charge of them and they moved them out. Now, they had the assistance of the Alabama Immigration Company, civilian contractors that were supposed to supply food along the way, wagons and horses and clothing, which they did. They ended up having to remind those contractors of every bit of their contract that they were supposed to provide. What happened when they got outside of New Orleans and route? to the Oklahoma Territory. An interesting thing happened when they got outside of New Orleans. <laughs> uh, some of the local settlers kept selling whiskey to the Indians, which caused problems. So Sloan and Reynolds tracked down that settler and took their axes to barrels of whiskey and destroyed the barrels of whiskey that the settlers were selling whiskey out of. They were arrested by local law enforcement, taken in front of the judge. Judge says what you did was absolutely right. They shouldn't have been selling to the Indians, but it'll cost you a hundred bucks a piece. <laughs> so uh, the judge agreed with their actions, but still fined them for the destruction of the whiskey. They did get their Creek families out to Arkansas. It was a journey of over 800 miles on land, something like 425 miles by steamboat on the rivers. So Marines got Creeks to the Oklahoma Territory. Tell us about the Marines who came to Florida. Let's go back to October 1836 when the Marines came into Florida. There were actually two distinct groups of Marines. The Marines of the regiment that Henderson brought down, but also the Marines of the West Indies Squadron. The West Indies Squadron of ships was based in Pensacola, Florida Naval Yard, and they patrolled the Gulf of Mexico, the Caribbean, and the South. Even at that late time of history, they were still tracking down pirates. <laughs> down in the Caribbean. Okay, and up, up in Alabama and Georgia, their main mission was to round up the creeks. Now, they did have some skirmishes. There were some parts of the creeks that were not in favor of moving. So they did have a few skirmishes, but no major engagement, okay? They helped oversee the groups of creeks as they came in and kept watch over them until it was time. The Lieutenant Reynolds and Sloan, plus whatever men they had under their command, did escort groups of creeks, also with Lieutenant Sprague. They each had a group of creeks that they they out. Sprague had about 2,200, and Reynolds and Sloan had probably, between the two of them, close to between 2,500 and 3,000. Lieutenant Sprague of the Marines. I've heard that name Sprague somewhere. Sprague did a, a wonderful book on the Second Seminole War, but he had also resigned from the Marine Corps and joined the Army at the insistence of his father-in-law, and I think General Jesse Lowell influenced there too, mainly because he would have better advancement probabilities in the Army than would in the Marines. I believe it was around toward the end of 1837 that he made the transition. It may have been early 1838. He was one of the Marine officers that was assigned to go down to Alabama and Georgia and help round up the creeks and then find the duty of taking about 2,200 creeks out to the Arkansas Territory. And then he came down to Florida for a brief period until he transitioned to the Army. There were probably maybe eight different groups of Creeks that were taken out. So there were Army officers doing this duty also. Again, Henderson brought down somewhere around 300 Marines. So he had 
his regiment, but there were also that were on board the ships of the West Indies Squadron. And the Marines of the West Indies Squadron were actually the first Marines to come in to the fray there at Fort Brooke and along the west coast of Florida around the Panhandle and the Big Bend area. In January of 1836, a month after Major Dade and his command were massacred, the Marines of the West Indies Squadron were the first ones to get into Fort Brooke to reinforce the Army there. Now, they did patrol, like I said, in and around the Withacoochee River mouth in that area of Florida. Every time they heard, they were given a request by the governor, hey, there's rumors of Indians attacking settlers and please send the Marines and sailors up in that area. When they did, 57 Marines from the USS Constellation, the USS St. Louis, did come into Fort Brooke in January of 1836. They helped patrol the area. They helped reinforce the fort. At that time, people there at Fort Brooke were expecting to be attacked. So the Marines landing there was a welcome sight. Now, fast forward to October, and Henderson and his Marines landed there at Fort Brooke. General Jessup and 700 Creek Warriors came with him. Jessup put Henderson in charge of Fort Brooke and the Tampa Bay area to oversee all the troops coming and going, the supplies coming in and, and setting up patrols around the area. That went on until December. There's another aspect of the Marines' duties, and that was helping supply the forts. Army Colonel Foster was sent up to what is now Hillsborough River State Park to rebuild the fort that had once been there and to rebuild the bridge going across the Hillsborough River, which was part of the Fort King Road that ran from Fort Brook, which was Tampa, up to Fort King, which is now Ocala. Foster took about 300-plus men and in 18 days of December 1836, he rebuilt that whole fort and rebuilt the bridge. During that month, when this was going on, the Marines from Fort Brooke escorted wagon trains. Every few days, there was a wagon train of maybe 20, 25 wagon loads of supplies going from Fort Brooke up to Fort Foster. You usually had a guard of 200 going with each one of those wagon trains. Mostly Marines, but sometimes they'd have the artillery men of the Army also, and some of the Creek Indians go with them. Now, why the artillery from the Army? Well, there wasn't a whole lot of use of the artillery here in Florida during the Seminole War, so the artillerymen were used as infantry. They helped patrol. They would take these wagon trains up there. They'd make that 24-mile trek in a day, and then next day help unload all those supplies and then head back to Tampa to Fort Brooke. And then a couple of days later, they'd be coming back with another load. They brought up a couple cannons. I think at the end of their constant resupply of Fort Brooke, they list 50,000 rations, 25,000 musket cartridges, plus another 25,000 rounds of powder, plus 100 rounds each for both the two cannons. What was the purpose of Fort Foster? This fort was built mostly to protect the bridge on the Hillsborough River as a supply depot for the troops in the field. There had been a fort there previously. They were Alabama militia, and it was called Fort Alabama. When they left, they left a couple barrels of gunpowder with a musket stuck in it with a line stretching over to the main gate. They were about not even a mile down the road when they heard the explosion. The Seminoles tried to go into the fort and take it over and you know get everything they could that may have been left behind. So that destroyed that the first fort there. The Marines were not involved in that. There was also some of the Marines were involved up in the Battle of the Cove of the Withacoochee, 
and those were mostly the Marines from the squadron. And Lieutenant Ross of the Marines was wounded seriously there. He died about a week later. He was the first Marine officer to die since the War of 1812. The Marines, once again, were employed as peacemakers. Also, one of the engagements up in the with the Coochie area, Colonel Lindsay of the Army had a little problem with the Alabama troops. The Alabama militia troops were not all that well disciplined. So when they were on the march, they'd be shooting at anything. So he took their extra ammunition away. They were known to be getting drunk too often. So he took their whiskey away. They didn't like all that. So one night they had kept threatening Lindsay. And one night they cut the mane and the tail off his horse and made more threats against him. That all came to an end when Lindsay was assigned a bodyguard of six Marines that solved the problem. People asked, why were them involved? Well, back in those days, the Army and the Navy were kept real small. And anytime the Army was needed and needed more troops, they were supplemented with different state militias. Every state had to have their militia. Now, the militias, some were better than others. It depended on their command structure. Some of the officers had military duty before. Some of them were just prominent citizens that were voted in as the commanders. So they were not necessarily that well-trained. Some of these militias actually were kind of fraternal kind of group in their area and did a little military training. So the Army would be supplemented with militias and the Marines. That's how all these other troops got involved. All right, Timekeeper, where are we on the calendar for the Marines deployment? December and January area. There was the Wahoo Swamp, and then there was the Cove with Lacucci incursions. There were a lot of patrols around the Tampa Bay area and south, and sailors and Marines patrolled up the Mayaka River. They had captured a Seminole who agreed to take them up the river where there was supposed to be a Seminole village. So they went partway up in canoes and then hoofed it the rest of the way finally ended up at a place where they called Calpan, which was a small village along with a great big corral that the Seminoles used for keeping their cattle, which they they ended up destroying and going back. One of the things that early Spanish settlers did that proved very good for everybody in Florida was they turned their cattle loose and the cattle bred like crazy and, and they were all over Florida. And the Seminoles were very good at rounding them up and keeping herds of cattle. So that was one of their mainstays of, of food. Matter of fact, Florida ended up supplying the South with cattle all through the Civil War. That's how much cattle was down here. They were running about 4,000 cattle through Tampa heading up to the southern cities. Anyway, so they didn't catch any Seminoles on that Mayaka River raid, but they kept patrolling all through that area. Now, January 1837, Jessup wanted all the troops that he could muster out in the field. So he made two brigades. He took the first brigade, and he put Henderson in charge of the second brigade. Henderson had most of his Marines. There were some that went with Jessup. He had Creek Indians, and he had some of the militia groups. They were mounted Marines. Some of the militia units did have horses. Some of the Army troops had horses, but not many. And Jessup used these mounted Marines and other troops as quick react forces. Unfortunately, some of the areas they went, there was not enough forage for horses, and the horses suffered. They had taken to the field. They chased after the Seminoles. Jessup went a little southern easterly course, and Henderson took his troops to the east. They ended up over toward what is now Orlando, captured over 100 head of cattle of the Seminoles and 100 of their ponies loaded with all their worldly goods. 
and had a one-day running battle with Seminoles through the swamps over there, ending up toward Hatchelusty Creek, which is today called Reedy Creek, which is on, on the western border of Disney. After a one-day running battle with them, the Seminoles decided it was probably time to talk since they lost everything. So they agreed with the next month, they came in and talked with Jessup and agreed to start bringing their people into Tampa Bay. Over the next two months, they started straggling in. And long about May, everybody thought, oh, good, the war's over. We can start sending troops home. So some of the militias were being sent home. Henderson took quite a bit of the Marines with him. He left 170 behind, took the rest of them back up north to go back to their posts and get back to their regular duties. All right, so like I said, in May 1837, they started sending troops home. And unfortunately, all the Seminoles that had come into the Tampa Bay area were kept in a camp about seven miles east of Fort Brook, probably in area of where today's Orient Road Jail is. In June, as they were flying these folks and getting them ready to be shipped out west, in June 1837, Osceola and Sam Jones, two of the Seminole chiefs, came through the encampment and convinced everybody they didn't want to go out west. At the same time, there were slave catchers hanging around trying to convince the black Seminoles that they weren't going to be allowed to go, hoping to get them to run back out into the woods, capture them and take them back up and sell them back into slavery. Black Seminoles were escaped slaves from northern Florida and Georgia. Some of them were actually raised with Spanish people that lived over in St. Augustine area and Pensacola area. That also helped stir up trouble. The Marines were able to get those slave catchers rounded up and moved out of the area. General Jessup was adamant that the Black Seminoles were going to be emigrated with the Seminole. There was a lot of discussion about that up north that they shouldn't be able to go. They should be sent back to the slave owners. But Jessup was adamant that they would go with the Seminoles. Otherwise, the Seminoles probably wouldn't go. And as it turned out, June 1837, everything started back up again. A lot of the actions after then were south of Fort Brook, around the Peace River and south into the Everglades. There were a lot of skirmishes back and forth. Marines and sailors did a lot of patrolling in the rivers. It was the advent of riverine warfare that was developed with two naval officers, Lieutenant McLaughlin and Powell. Going into 1838, the rest of the Marine Regiment was sent back north. They were originally ordered to go up to New Orleans to General Scott, who was at that point in charge of rounding up the Cherokees. They were supposed to go up there and, and assist with the Cherokee roundup. That was in April of 38. Now, I have not seen anything. And I contacted people that some historians with the Cherokee roundup that they didn't recognize any of the Marine officers' names or saw any mention of Marines in the Cherokee roundup. Those Marines ended up getting back to Washington in, in September of 1838. As far as I know, they did not get involved in the Cherokee roundup. The information that I've been able to pull out of sources does not mention them involved in it. They were to be involved in it, but then when they got there, they were not needed. The Marines that were still in Florida at the time then were Marines of the West Indies Squadron. There were probably a couple hundred of them that were involved, not necessarily all at one time. But in December of 1840 and into January of 1841, 90 sailors and 60 Marines were the first white men to cross the Everglades from the East Coast to the West Coast. They started at Fort Dallas, which is today Miami, and ended up on the West Coast where they were picked up by one of their ships. During that time, they 
come across villages that were abandoned. They'd burn them. At this point, it was a matter of trying to deprive what Seminoles were left, their villages and their crops. In the Everglades, there were areas that flat, dry land where the Seminoles cultivated with their crops. So anytime they came across those kind of areas, they would destroy the crops. Then again, in February to April, 1842, another expedition of sailors and Marines spent 58 days going back and forth across the Everglades, 58 days in canoes. Now, these were special canoes. They were 30 feet long and about four feet wide. They had storage compartments in them. So they virtually lived in these things for 58 friggin' days. There again, they destroyed villages. They came across only a few Seminoles. There were 87 of the sailors and Marines and a few Seminole scouts in this expedition. And a young midshipman by the name of Preble was amongst them. And Preble stayed in the Navy for many years and retired as an admiral. But on this canoe expedition, he was probably about 16, 17 years old. And he wrote a journal of their exploits. And it was uh, through the eyes of a teenager. It was all about the food. He talks about, oh, we had fresh fish because they kept jumping in the canoes. We had turkey. We had deer. We had vegetables from their garden. We had plenty of eggs, fresh eggs out of all the birds and nests we found. And it was just food, food, food. <laughs> but he was very descriptive about the actions they took also. And when they got to areas where there was enough dry land, the Marines would go out and search on land. And they would just, it was a whole 58 days. That was quite a, a expedition that they did. It was February to April. By that time, of course, there was another commanding general, although he went by the rank Colonel, Colonel William Worth. What were his objectives? Colonel Worth had been petitioning the War Department to end all this. After that 58-day crisscrossing of the Everglades and only finding a few Seminoles, he again petitioned them. And the problem was they were spending so much money on this, and there were so many men that were coming down with disease, dysentery, cholera, yellow fever, that it was taking such a heavy toll on personnel. Finally, the War Department agreed. So in August of 1842, they decided that the war was over. But those Seminoles never signed anything to agree. <laughs> there were, of course, more Seminoles in the Everglades, but it was very hard to find them. Somewhere between frustration and futility, I'd say. How did the Seminole frustrate their efforts? What they discovered was Seminoles could see them coming, all right? Even though they lost their villages, they'd turn around and rebuild them or build them somewhere else. There were plenty of areas in the swamps that they could grow their own crops. Plus, there was plenty of wildlife that they could live off of. So here we have, they knew that they were probably less than five, maybe 600 at the very most left in the Everglades. So there, it was just too much against them actually being able to round them all up. It was just not cost effective, especially in the cost of the men that were doing these activities, trying to round them up. It was just not worth the effort at that point. Uh, they had removed uh, several thousand Indians out of Florida, so they were leaving less than a thousand behind. It just was not worth it. Too many people were coming seriously ill. The fact that they had done so much patrolling in the Everglades and turn up so little, it, it just wasn't worth the cost and the human cost. The West Indies Squadron then were released to do their usual duties. Several things came out of this, and that was the riverine warfare. Dave, what is riverine warfare? The use of sailors and marines patrolling 
up and down rivers, finding the Kunti fields down there around New River, around what is now Miami area. The Seminoles would cultivate, finding villages, finding actual persons down there. The riverine warfare was again used in Florida during the Civil War. The Navy and Marines of the blockading squadron did a lot of patrolling in small boats up and down rivers, around the islands, into the bays, looking for blockade runners. So they had a basis on how to do these things. And part of that, the Navy uh, studied again come the Vietnam War and used the same kind of tactics in Vietnam that were established there in the Seminole War. One of the <laughs> legends of the Marines was when Henderson rounded up the regiment and moved south, and he put the band in charge up there around the Naval Yard in Washington and Washington, D.C. headquarters that he tacked a note on his office door said, gone to fight Indians, be back when the war's over. That's part of the Marine lore, Marine legends. Official Marine Corps historians take a dim view of this folklore story. However, they are in agreement on the old man of the Marine Corps, Archibald Henderson, and the tremendous impact he had on the Corps. He was the old man of the Marines. He spent 38 years as a commandant. I'll tell you how bold this guy was. He was the only Marine commandant to actually take troops into the field as commandant. I'm going to go ahead up to 1858 to tell you a little bit about the brassness of Henderson. 1858 election in Washington, D.C., there was gangs brought in to try to influence the election. Imagine that. And they were from Baltimore. I'm told the name for this rabble were the Plug Uglies of the Know Nothing Party from Baltimore. I guess they knew themselves. They were surrounding the polling place there in Washington, D.C. The president sent for Henderson to take troops there and run them off. <laughs> Um, Henderson was uh, in his civilian clothes, social gathering, but he went, sent word to the barracks to send a couple squads of Marines, and he marched them up to the polling place in his tux carrying his umbrella and marched right up to the gang there surrounding the polling place, and they had a cannon with them. He stood right in front of the cannon barrel and said, you will not fire on my Marines. Well, one of them made the mistake of trying to run up and shoot him in a Marine clubbed him down. He ordered them to fire over the heads of the, there's like 200 of these gang members. So they fired over the heads of them. They took off running. That tells you the boldness of him standing right in front of friggin' cannon. <laughs> anyway, that was Henderson. He was bold. Tell us about his sometime rival, Lieutenant Colonel Miller. And Lieutenant Colonel Miller, who was his second in command, when Henderson took the field, Miller was put in charge of Fort Brooke and Tampa Bay. There was a little dispute whether he should be in charge or, you know, Army Lieutenant Colonel should be who had seniority. So rather than stir up trouble, Jessup took his his colonel out to the field with and left Miller in charge. Now, Miller was a unique character himself. During the War of 1812, he was in charge of the, the Marine contingent who were the last troops to stand between Washington, D.C. and the British Army. There was a contingent of Marines, some sailors, and then there was a militia group with artillery. And unfortunately, they ran out of ammunition, and the other groups took off, and that left Miller and his Marines, the last ones to stand in front of the British. And they eventually had to fall back, too. But they put up such a fight that the legend is that when the British troops got in Washington, D.C. and started burning government buildings, they got to the commandant's house and the headquarters. And out of respect for the professional stand of the Marines, they did not burn 
the headquarters or the commandant's house. <laughs> All right, Dave, take us back to Florida. Who followed Samuel Miller? Captain Delaney was left in charge of the Marines after Lieutenant Colonel Miller went back north. Delaney was in charge of a group of Marines, the Marines that were left behind. And they were down south around the Fort Myers area, quite a bit of patrolling down there. And he was in charge of building a fort there at Punarosa. And they would say he named it Fort Delaney. Now, I've actually had contact with his great-great-great-granddaughter because I've been trying to find descendants of some of these Marines, hoping to find one that might have a journal or some letters from them. Anyway, she was aware of Delaney, and he was uh, he retired from the Marines around the Civil War time. He was retired. So I got some information for her. She filled in a couple little antidotes that they knew. It turns out that he was one of the three ranking Marines when the Civil War came about. He was in charge of one of the Naval Yards, and they wanted to put him out in the fleet in charge of the fleet Marines. He didn't really like that idea because he had his family there, and... Uh, he expected he was going to be commandant. So he told Secretary Navy, I said, well, you know, I'm going to be ranking those naval officers out on that ship. So I get the primary quarters. Well, Secretary Navy thought wisely about that. He didn't want to have a mutiny on his hands from the naval officers that the Delaney would be <laughs> replacing in quarters on board ship. So he left to stay at the Naval Yard. However, he and two other ranking officers of the Marines were then retired because they were they decided they were too old. So John Harris, who had been one of the Marines down here in Florida, was made commandant. Okay, so that's it for color for Marine officers. When did Henderson finally depart? He died 1859. And overall, what have you learned about the Marines in the Florida Wars? One of the main things I learned doing all this research is I never figured that they were part of the group that would have been involved taking groups of Indians out to the Arkansas Territory. They actually manned 12 of the forts off and on during that war, but their involvement. Now, the only thing I got out of the Marine archives, they had copies of 73 orders written by General Jessup to Lieutenant Colonel Miller when he was in charge of the Tampa Bay Air. Jessup, in his letters and orders, was very highly praising the Marines, including Colonel Miller. He really, really loved the Marines. Now, the research I've done came mostly out of three of Jessup's journals. There again, he was very much impressed with the Marines. Where did you find these? One of the journals was online. Another journal, I got my hands physically on at the uh, library up at the University of Florida. And then it took me over a year to locate the third one just because of the way it was listed online. Come to find out it was up in the library at Yale University. And, oh, gee, I'm not going to drive all the way up there. So I called them. Oh, yeah, we make a copy of it. So a lot of this came out of his journals. A lot of it came out of the Army, Navy Chronicles and a few of the books, like The Swamp Sailors by Booker, Bragg's book, Grant Foreman's book on Indian immigration. The book I wrote, The U.S. Marines of the Second Creek and Second Seminole War, is the only book written about their involvement. Every Marine history book that I've ever had since I've been in the Marines now devoted a couple paragraphs to their six, seven-year involvement. This book is now part of the library at the Annapolis Naval Academy. When I talked to them, they really wanted something because they didn't have anything on it to speak of other than Buker's book. And at the Marine Library up in Quantico and the Research Library at the Atatiki Museum. So it was uh, two years worth of research to put this together. Like I said, I've given this talk 
on the Marines in the Civil War and the Marines in the Second Seminole War for nine or 10 years down there at the History Center on the 4th of July. And then these additional talks that I've given on their monthly featured speaker event, I just listed as a discussion on the Marines in the Second Seminole War here in Florida. They keep asking you back, so you must get pretty good turnout. We've had really good turnout. I had the biggest crowd so far of the featured speakers. I've given talks in school. I've done a couple of Zoom talks here with COVID on, on the Marines in Vietnam. What we did as far as using signals intelligence, which is what I did in Vietnam. Plus, I've been out to civic groups and a couple of schools doing these talks also. Well, you have a great love of the Marines because you enlisted as a Marine. Tell us about that. I was in the Marines for three years, 69 to 72. I was the first radio battalion, which was signals intelligence. We did intercept of enemy communications in southwest of Da Nang up in the hill and mountain country. Most of the time I was doing radio direction finding on their transmitters, which would, as we got triangulated on them, they would be hit either with artillery or airstrikes. And we were pretty good at it. I was there for eight months and then we got pulled out and stationed in Hawaii. So why did you do this? What was your interest? Well, I've always been interested in history and being involved in the Marines. I, that was one of my favorite topics. I originally got started with doing reenacting as a Marine in the Civil War. Oh, back around 1999, a lot of research on them in the Civil War, so I give talks. And then I was invited by old Dale up at Fort Foster to come up there and, and reenact. First year I went as militia because I didn't know anything about the Marines being there. And then when I was there and saw the plaque that Marines had manned that fort, I thought, you yeah, know, I'm going to dig into it a little more. So if I dug into it, then I had uniform made, got all the correct accoutrements and everything. Started giving the talk up at Fort Foster, uh, their candlelight events, rendezvous events down in the museums. Talk about the Marine uniform, please. Appropriate for the Florida Wars? Marines had a summer uniform, a winter uniform, and then a dress uniform. Needless to say, they didn't need their dress uniform down here. The summer uniform is white linen, and the winter uniform is gray wool. The first uniform I made, along with Archie Marshall, made the winter uniform. Well, I got tired of explaining to people, no, I'm not a Confederate. <laughs> After about two years of that, we went and made a summer uniform out of the white linen. And the white linen is not that much cooler than the gray wool, let me tell you. And people ask, well, why white? Well, it was used actually by militaries around the world. Even the Army used it here in this country. It was cheap. The dye cloth for uniforms, that dye is expensive. So they just kept them white because it was cheap. They were not too difficult to clean. So around 1840, I think it was, they changed over to a completely different uniform which if you see the picture of Navy and Marines coming through the, through the Everglades in the canoes, the colored picture, you'll see their uniform kind of resembled what eventually was artillery uniform of the Army. Black and white photograph of what they passed off as Marines, uh, one standing up in a canoe there in the Everglades, has the wrong hat. That was an Army hat. Their leather forage cap was actually flat, not the kind that stood up. So that may have been Army reenactors as opposed to Marine reenactors in that photograph. That's not saying that they didn't have to borrow some of those hats to replace theirs as time went on, because the Army had more money than the Marines did, so they may have had to dip into their supplies. So, We presume the wool uniforms would have been more sturdy than the linen ones. How did the linen ones hold up? Uh, the gray, the linen that it was, it was a little sturdier, but going through things like sawgrass in the Everglades, that stuff will cut through just about anything. 
Despite your best efforts, Dave, to explain the uniforms that the Marines had in the Florida Wars, people still have questions. There's a lot of questions about the uniforms. Basically, people are kind of surprised at the fact that you're wearing white in a war. But like I said, that was uh, par for the course for just about every military with a summer uniform. Uniforms in the militaries were different colors for different reason of commanders being able to tell where their people were on the battlefield and what units they were. So that's why the different armies had maybe two or three different types of uniforms out on the battlefield at one time. That all got standardized later in years. Big leather hat. Hats were so bizarre back in those days. Civilian hats, military hats. They were a fashion statement more than anything. That's another thing that surprises people. And then the white belts that the Marines wore for many, many years stand out so much. So those are some of the questions about uniforms. Now, Dave, our listeners know that Jerry Morris bakes Army-style hardbread from the 1830s. You've done the same, but for the Marines. How different was that? I usually put a display of representation of the food that they would have as a day's marching ration. Although I don't make salt beef or pork, I'll have a package that represents the pound of salt beef or pork that they would have for a day's marching ration. And a round loaf of bread and the hard bread. I tell them that if you were lucky, you'd have a pound of bread, fresh bread. If you were not lucky, you would have a pound of of hard bread, which at that time they didn't call it hard. The Navy had round hard bread as opposed to the square ones that the Army had. And that had to do with the uh, containers that they came in. Then usually having fresh fruit and a little bag of coffee beans, a little bag of regular beans and display. And then their tin plate and cup utensils so they could see what they had to eat. Yeah, you know, kids will look at that stuff and I say, yeah, yeah, don't complain about your school lunches now. <laughs> so taking your knowledge of the Marines' uniforms and the Marines' food and the Marines' tactics and operations. You published articles on the Marines in the Civil War, and then you were looking at the Seminole War, and you thought you might have enough for an article. But it turns out it was a little bigger than that. As I came across more journals and Army-Navy Chronicles, I thought, yeah, I've got just enough here for a book. So that's why I ended up going all the way with the book. Um, trying to use MyHeritageAncestry.com, looking up descendants of some of these people And I've had some responses back from them that, no, we didn't have any letters, and no, I don't have any other information. So I've still got feelers out there. If if perchance that I come across somebody that has a journal or letters, then yeah, we'll make an an addendment to the book. Dave, we've podcasted with Chris Kimball about the book he pulled together, citing all the Seminole Wars references in the Army-Navy Chronicle. How important was that publication to your research? Oh, and it's amazing what was in those Army-Navy Chronicles. There was no such thing as secrecy in their movement. It was like, oh, this many Marines from this Naval Yard, this many Marines from this Naval Yard, they all went on this steamboat. It's like, okay. Of course, good thing that the Seminoles didn't have access to those newspapers. (laughs) Really, labor of love in finding all this stuff, getting enough to actually put a book together to honor those men that spent all that time down here in Florida. Fortunately, there were only a few that were actually killed in combat. It's typical of that period. I think I came across maybe three that were killed in action or died from a wound, six wounded. Disease was about 40, and then two that drowned. So all things considered, that's amazing. In terms of additional research, you met somebody who offered you a box with some valuable items. 
he invited me to his house to see all the artifacts he had collected while it was still legal to do that. And I said, sure, no problem. Later, he calls, and I go over, and, and he has an incredible collection. And some of the stuff he got at auctions, historical auctions, but a lot of it he had collected himself. He comes out and says, here, take this box with you. And it was this old file box. He says, now, I bought this at a yard sale for $5, and they were going to throw it away if nobody bought it. In it was the personal records of a Marine who served in World War One in Nicaragua. So I was so great. So I took it home, and over the next few days, I scanned in all that. Plus, besides those records, there was about an inch high stack of letters he wrote his wife from Nicaragua in 1927. Now, this guy in World War One had earned the Silver Star and the Croix de Guerre. In Nicaragua, he was actually put in for the Medal of Honor, but he received the Navy Cross and the Nicaraguan Presidential Citation. He was put in charge of Nicaraguan troops, the National Guardia, that was called. And he was always bragging how he was going to get Sandy, you know, Sandino, who the founder of the Sandinista. He was killed in an ambush, and they dragged his body off and mutilated, but the body was recovered. So I got his records from the personnel archives, and it was just one combination after another. This was an incredible guy. His letters to his wife were just absolutely incredible, descriptive, articulate, everything about the life in Nicaragua in 1927 and, and everything, and what he was doing, how he was doing. I got to fly in a plane that could seat 16 people, and it took only an hour and a half to go from Acatala to Managua. That took us 11 days by mule and <laughs> things like that. And so, like any good historian, you don't sniff at what people offer you. Take a look at it. And what did you do with it? I put together a book, A Marine's Letter from Nicaragua. Months ago, I got a little magazine from the Marine Corps Heritage Foundation. And in it was an article on some of their researchers. And this one was researching the Marines in Nicaragua. So I emailed him and I finally got a response back. I sent him a picture of the book to see if he wanted a copy. And so I'd love it. He said, I have heard mention of Sergeant Bruce in interviews that were done with the Sandinistas back during that time. And he says they all said he was cruel and vicious, but that was probably just to justify them mutilating his body. And he says, oh, I'd love to have the book. He says, I'll send you copies of those interviews. I said, all right. But it's amazing some of the stuff that comes around. And the thing of it is, one of the letters in that box was, a. there were letters from some of his officers and expressing condolences to the widow. And one of them was a letter from the Marine Corps Museum thanking her for his photo album, his medals, and the rebel flag he captured down there. So I emailed my contact up there and says, hey, can you get me some pictures out of his photo album? She says, it might be kind of difficult finding that. And I said, well, here's the file numbers <laughs> that was in the letter. About an hour later, I had nine pictures right out of his photo album. It's like, oh, right. There's a photo that's all over the internet of I think it's five Marines holding that rebel flag. The archives didn't have any names associated. Well, guess what? In one of his letters to his wife, he describes that time when he named each one holding that flag. So the archives now have names to put on that photo. It makes me shudder to think of the loss to history and to our knowledge of that period. Had the owner of that box just tossed it out because nobody bought it. Yeah, yeah. You got to wonder how much history is lost from people throwing old letters away. And it's often more than old letters that are being tossed away. Tell us about what your friend Mike Alvarez had. Mike Alvarez, he does reenactments down at the museum on one of those 4th of Julys. He was in World War One uniform. He had come across this at a estate sale, a complete footlocker full of the entire 
uniform, including a gas mask, which are extremely rare. And it's like, holy cow, that is a fine. I had a great uncle that was in World War One. He was in an artillery unit. And the only thing that he had, <laughs> it's funny, when he died, my aunt, my aunt went down to help get rid of his stuff and everything. And he had souvenirs from World War One, which was a couple small artillery shells. <laughs> she, she took it down to the police department and she said that police sergeant about turned white as a ghost when he saw these things come out of that paper bag. <laughs> Fortunately, they were inert. <laughs> yeah, it's funny some of the stuff that comes back from those eras. All right, Dave, what are some of the venues that you've been able to get out recently to talk about the Marines? Okay, Tampa Bay History Center. I just did a talk about a month ago at the Sulphur Springs Museum. Fort Foster has been shut down with COVID, and they haven't opened it back up yet. But I'll be up there when they do reopen. They do the candlelight thing in December, then they have a rendezvous there in February. Uh, that's the only place on the actual battle reenactments is Second Seminole. Pioneer Museum of Dade City. I did Civil War up there a few times. And let's see, I've done some schools, I've done some civic groups, and I'm going to be talking to the Civil War Roundtable people here next month. Dave Eckert, U.S. Marine, thanks for joining us again for the Seminole Wars. You are welcome. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation, 2022. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden. Roast them, provided by kind permission of Rudy Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pitt. All rights reserved.